This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Hello and welcome to the Pioneer Agronomy Podcast, where we keep you one step ahead of local agronomy issues throughout Illinois. In our previous episode, we did an introduction, so if you have not listened to that, please go back and listen to it to get some background around this podcast and why we're doing it. In today's podcast episode, we are going to be discussing wheat management. So to really kick this off, I want to introduce those of us that are on this podcast. Um, So from Northern Illinois, you have Crystal Williams. Uh, And then Cody Pettit from Eastern Illinois. Brad Mason from Western Illinois. Matt McGemory from West Central, Central Illinois. And Scott Everstard from Southern Illinois. Thank you. So we are um, talking, like I said, about wheat management and spring nitrogen. So I want to identify what many of us field agronomists recognize as the wheat king um, of the state as Scott Eversgird. So all hail, we're all raising our hands and bowing down to you right now. <laughs> You can't see because it's a podcast. But um, so, Scott, passing it off to you, what do you want growers or farmers to know about wheat management this spring? Oh, I wish it was just that easy, Crystal. But uh, so a lot of things happening in the wheat field as we head into spring here. So I think we'll start off, you know, just a little bit of background. You know, a lot of what we're going to talk about today is kind of what we can do moving forward, right? The crops in the field, it's planted pretty well got what we got. So how do we manage that moving forward? I think it's also important to kind of step back a little bit and kind of talk a touch about what got us to this point. So, you know, a lot of what I'll talk about is at least in direct reference to Southern Illinois, you know, Matt will definitely join in and the other guys and, and Cody and Brad for, for their areas. But, you know, so a lot of my comments again will be specific to Southern Illinois, you know, but I, as I go back to last fall and the planning conditions we had, you know, we got a little bit of wheat planted there the last couple of days, September, first couple of days, October, it actually got up um, because of extremely dry conditions. You know, that crop today is, is well advanced, tillered in the fall very well. Uh, it's very lush, very thick, looks looks really good. The rest of our crop, whether you planted it on October 5th or you planted it on October 20th, none of that really came up until October 25th was the first soaking rain we had. So. The rain finally fell on the 25th, so about five days later, we actually finally started seeing the rest of that crop emerge. So in a sense, we've got two very distinct planting dates. Um, now that, that late wheat, that October 30th wheat, when it was emerging, um, actually has overwintered and come through the winter, uh, grew a little bit over the winter, and actually looks really good um, compared to what we thought we could end up with as we were planting it, and then it came up in some pretty cool wet conditions. So. With that, we, we kind of moved to the spring now. And, you know, one of the one of the first things we look at is stand assessment, and that that's kind of what we're spending a lot of time in the fields doing. You know, as we as we came through the winter here, you know, but really just seeing what our stands are, what our tillering process looks like, what our potential for head count is, uh, which ultimately means what our what our chance for yield is. Um, so as we look at that, so, you know, some of the numbers we use. Um, we're really looking to have 30 to 35 plants per square foot on the upper side. You know, we can take that down to 25 and still have 100% relative yield. So we're looking to have, you know, 25 to 35 plants per square foot. Um, so, to, so to make that easy math, Matt, um, seven and a half inch rows, 
that, that's about 19.2 inches, you know, to, to get your equal to one square foot. So again, looking for around 25 plants in that part of the, uh, this time of year. As we get under that, start looking at, you know, we can go down into the maybe mid-teens and still manage that crop up a little bit and get to maybe 80, 90% relative yield. Because really, as we get to the low teens or you get under 13 plants per square foot, Boy, it really does get tough to uh, to manage that crop up. So, Matt, in your part of the world, what are you seeing on stands and how things look? Yeah, I think probably a similar story, right? An early versus late planted crop. Some of it that uh, probably got a little bit, little bit of a later stop, start. But in general, I'd say wheat crop came through pretty well. I don't know, Brad. We had some days in December, you know, Cody, some days in December that got pretty cold. And I had people pretty anxious about if we winter till and I Scott you can correct me and some of the other guys can I'm not sure that we really ran into anything that reduced stand for me at least um, when it came to wheat stand just because of those December days yeah they got so cold I for me a, a standard for me is always thinking of like late 90s Scott you probably remember there was there was a year in there where it did we burn out right. and from from cold winter temperatures but I really haven't seen that I, I don't know what your guys' experience has been. I, I would agree the same, Matt. I mean, I, I didn't see much winter kill as of right now. Uh, yeah. As things have been greening up, I haven't seen too much issue. And I, really, with winter kill, I temperatures don't bother me. It's more ice, I think, yeah. personally. I think we all would agree. That's what that's what I look for. And we really haven't, at this point in time yet, had major ice storms that have, have caused that. When we had those cool temperatures, we either had snow snowfall or we were bare at those point in time. Yeah, I'd agree with that. We we got most of our stuff in in that first planting window um, just because we had such a great great harvest um, this fall so no we we look good from here on out yeah yeah so for all the Illinois wheat crop in general looks pretty good I would say for northern Illinois we did have a little bit of a delayed um, planting date we do have wheat up here just a little bit <laughs> but uh don't forget about us. No. Um, but I would say we had a lot slower of a um, harvest season as the rest of the state got. Um, I remember calling you fellow agronomists earlier this last fall and um, we were just getting going. So um, we had a little bit of a delay in harvest, therefore um, kind of pushed back some of our planting for wheat. But I was going to say from a tillering perspective, if we do have listeners that planted a little bit farther behind, maybe their ideal window, um, and maybe there isn't the tillering that they would have liked to see, is their crop um, done for for the season? Or what? what's your thoughts there? Yeah, so from a tillering perspective, I mean, we, we still have a little bit of time to influence that. And, you know, the other thing to, to probably talk about here real quick is, when I talk to things that are maybe happening in Southern Illinois, always what I call the wheat maturation line, all right? So how fast wheat is maturing moving north, that moves about 100 miles a week. So if you're a grower setting 200 miles north of Cairo, whatever they're doing in Cairo in the Southern tip, you can expect two weeks later is gonna be happening in 200 miles north of there. So that'll give you a good idea of, you know, kind of how, how things progress northward as the wheat crop kind of matures and and really even develops here in the spring uh, so it's pretty good a pretty good gauge as uh, so as we think about tillering you know, at least in the southern part of the state we're in a process now we can we can influence tillering a little bit yet 
uh, with some early nitrogen applications. And we've had some growers uh, that went really that, I guess it'd been the first full week of February. We had some freezes and, you know, and a lot of growers actually ran about, you know, that, that first shot of nitrogen on a lot of their crops. So we, so coming out of that period, we probably had 60 to 70% of our acres had maybe a third to half of the nitrogen on it. Um, you know, a couple reasons. Uh, number one, getting it on, you know, buying you some time for that second shot. But then again, trying to influence tiller numbers a little bit on some of this later emerging wheat and just trying to thicken it up a little bit. And uh, we, we've definitely seen that have an effect uh, on these on these later crops and really induce spring tillering. So some early nitrogen applications can definitely help that. Got These are always opportunities, I think, for all of us at the at the table to learn just a little bit more about wheat from you. So we're talking about nitrogen. What what is kind of the common approach to nitrogen that you guys use down in your part of the world where wheat is a lot more king than maybe it is for some of the rest of us? Yeah, so nitrogen is really one of those things we you know, we had a lot of influence and actually it, uh, it influenced yield in a big way. You know, so, so I'll talk about our, you know, our, maybe our higher management stuff as a general rule. What, what you know about wheat and nitrogen, as the nitrogen rate goes up, the yield goes up with it until the wheat falls over. Right? So that's kind of the philosophy that we manage our nitrogen levels on. So we're going to push that apex on that curve as hard as we possibly can. So what that means is, you know, we've got some growers that are, they're in that 150 to 160 pounds of actual spring in. All right. So that, that takes off everything to fall. January 1, we start over. And then we're putting 150 to 160 pounds of actual in. Total, you're saying, or repeat that one more time. Just for spring nitrogen. Just for spring. Just for gotcha. spring. We'll, we'll discount everything in the fall. We, we figured, number one, we either used it, or number two, we probably yeah. lost it. Right? So we'll, we'll start at zero on, the, on January 1 and kind of manage forward from there. Now, that 150, 160 is definitely on the high side. You know, we're doing some unique things there that, that keep the wheat standing. Um, more common rates, probably in that 120 to 130 range is, is where we're kind of settling out on a lot of the, uh, the, the more medium management acres, so to speak. So, but again, managing, managing that relationship hard between nitrogen rate and yield, pushing that as hard as we can. And what's unique about that is you, you got to understand your, your, local, your, your local farms and how that reacts. Um, Steve Ewell at University of Illinois, when he was still down there, he's retired. But he did quite a few studies on nitrogen timing. And, you know, we looked at growth stage three versus growth stage five timing in southern Illinois. And basically what we saw was applying a growth stage five gave us much better yield. Now, when we moved that same study he did to central Illinois, and basically whether it's growth stage three or growth stage five, the yields lined up on top, exactly on top of each other. Remind me growth stage three, growth stage five, just because I'm sure other people on the podcast get a little bit less familiar about that. You're right. talking about Feeks 3, yeah. Feeks 5. Feeks 3, Feeks 5. So Feeks 3 is going to be right you know, right in that fall time frame. You're basically tillers are formed and you're just getting ready to really start to grow. You're coming, you're, that, that's your green up period coming through March. Feeks 5 is going to be just prior to joining. Joining is going to be where the, the growing point moves above the soil surface. You know, now we've become you know, another management step there. We, we watch pretty close, but Again, peaks five just right before joining, right before that. So we go back to that idea of the nitrogen application timing and the difference between Southern Illinois and Central Illinois. You know, I, I think you guys understand pretty quick is, you know, that Central Illinois soil holds nitrogen very well. Your organic matters, things like that, hold nitrogen. So you didn't see that huge difference 
um, in, in rate and timing for you guys. But the southern part of the state with thinner soils, obviously our soils did not hold nitrogen. And that's basically what that study was a good representation of. Those soils don't hold in. So in that scenario, our multiple applications of N are getting us higher yields because we just don't have that, that, that loss potential by putting it all out there real early. And there's some crop growth and development aspects that play into that then. So some yield parameters that are getting determined early that you're trying to firm up with that Peaks 3 or just remind me on that one too. Yeah, so our Peaks 3, you know, coming right out of the winter there, a couple of things we're trying to do. Number one, we're trying to, if we need to, induce tillering to thicken it up a little bit. Second thing is with that split shot at Peaks 3 by putting that on, let's say, a February timeframe and going to come back later with our the majority of our nitrogen, it, it buys us time, right? Because typically in Southern Illinois, as we get to March, um, we're, we're out of the realm of good freezing days so we can carry a, a sprayer across the field mm -hmm. on frozen ground. So we're dealing with a lot more muddy conditions. Logistics. Logistics, yeah. exactly. But we're in that scenario, we can't get across the field. What that earlier application has done is bought us some time. Because we know when we hit peaks late, late peaks five, headed into peak six, that's when our nitrogen uptake takes off. You know, where that, that weed is going to consume about 80% of its nitrogen between peak six and basically heading about a peak, peaks 10, 10.5. You know, so that, that's a pretty short period of time that you're taking up a lot of nitrogen. Um, so definitely don't want to be putting too much out there early and have potential for loss, but at the same time, can't be in a position where we have no nitrogen out there and we're getting to peak six and uptake is starting and we're light on nitrogen. But that, that early application protects us from, from running out too early, so to speak, and still hitting those those key points for the, for the wheat drop on uptake. So for us novices on wheat, is there a easy way for us to identify that peaks five as we start to you know, you talked about the growing point coming above ground, but could you explain that process? So, yeah. you know, a lot of us who got in the wheat market here last year because of commodity prices or are yeah. new to it, I mean, I think that's a big question I have or something I always get. So so stage five is, is a little tougher to, to, to get, you know, really final on stage five, because basically that's when your, your, your leaf keys become a wreck, all right? So that's when that wheat goes from kind of laying, laying on the ground and the next thing you know, you look at it, the, the wheat's really becoming a wreck. You walk out there, it's about a strong ankle high. You know, when they always say it can, it can hide a rabbit, you know, if you can hide a rabbit at Easter, you're going to have good wheat. You know, and that's kind of the idea that leaf sheets, leaf sheets have started to erect. I'm that, the new stuff. I know I'm keeping that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hide a rabbit at Easter, and it's getting wheat. But we're two weeks behind, so if I can yeah. hold it up there. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so right after that then becomes peak six, and that's the big one. That's joining. Uh, a little easier to identify because if you take that main stem, run your, your forefinger, your thumb up the stem, you'll feel that joint. You'll feel that bump, you know, that's coming up above the soil or the surface. And that, that right above that bumps, you're developing a hit. Right there's your growing point. And, and again, peak six is pretty critical for a lot of reasons. Number one, nitrogen uptake. Number two, we now become much more vulnerable to a late season freeze. So we go back to actually Easter morning, seven, I think, 2007, probably the uh, the worst one we've had in recent history. Seems like every year we get a little bit of freeze scare, uh, but that one actually killed some wheat that year. Um, I remember getting up that year, my kids hunting Easter eggs, and it was actually 22 degrees wow. um, Easter morning, 2007. Now, every book you read, every article you read said the wheat should have been dead, right? 
that uh, th this crop, like many others, has a has a way to just keep on as a resilient city to live. You know, and, and the wheat crop ended up, uh, we had a decent wheat crop that year. Now, there were some earlier varieties that didn't take it as well. Obviously, in earlier varieties, maturing early, it was a little more advanced in growth stage. It's probably pushing that second joint, and in which case, it become a lot more susceptible to freeze. Um, and, and one thing to think about in the spring, when we, you know, we get into that scenario where the, the growth stage is up, we're past joining, you know, maybe it's two inches above the ground. They're talking about temperatures at night getting to 25, 26. You know, we we'll always get one of those weekends somewhere where we get that scare. What you got to realize is the only temperature we're really concerned about is what's happening at that growing point. You know, I don't care what's happening three feet above the ground. I, so if you got if you got some buffering that's happened from the soil, maybe we've had some sunny days, the soil's warm, you're down in the canopy a couple inches, um, you know, we could easily stay four to five degrees warmer at two inches above the ground than we are at three or four feet above the ground. And I think that, that that's definitely something you got to watch as you as we get that scare that always happens every spring on, on temperature on wheat. Yeah, I've seen that the past couple of years where we always have that scare. So remind me, what is the what do the books say? Is it is it twenty eight degrees four hours plus? Most of the books are going to tell you about twenty six degrees to four hours. Yeah, is anything anything up past that you could potentially see damage. But again, that, that's temperature at the growing point, not at three or four feet, whatever yeah. the official temperature is. Right. Right. Yeah. And again, like after two thousand seven, I you know that that was a learning year. We learned a lot. Definitely, that the, the we can we can take a lot and still keep on kicking. So, and I think Brad even mentioned earlier, but really about the only way to really kill a wheat crop is ice. Um, that is the one thing that, that can kill a wheat crop, and uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that even through the winter months, um, respiration in wheat is occurring, whether it be in January twentieth and it's uh, fifteen degrees outside, wheat is still not truly in a dormant state. Is that respiration still occurring? And that's that's the reason that ice will actually kill it. Uh, now, ice doesn't kill an oak tree, right? Yeah. And, and because it's truly dormant. A wheat, a wheat crop doesn't go truly dormant in the sense of dormancy as we think about it. It's always growing throughout the winter. And, and this year is good evidence of that as well. As you look at where that crop was on October 31st versus where, where the crop's at today, if it had not been growing, it truly entered dormancy and didn't do anything in the winter. It'd be a lot. Not, lower. We'd have we'd have bare yeah. soils right exactly. now in some of those fields. Yeah. 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 You talked about nitrogen management. Are you looking at potassium, phosphorus, any of the sulfurs of the world, anything like that, Scott? In some of your yeah. So our, our P and K, you know, we, we look at that as you know just again general uh, general good recommendations. You know, for most of our guys, without recent soil tests, without in knowing we have to go higher or lower, 200 pounds of diet, 200 pounds of potash is what we'll apply in the fall. And then that's covering the wheat crop and then covering the, the double crop, bean crop coming behind that. Yeah. I think the big thing there is going back last fall is the phosphorus. Phosphorus is going to be essential for that fall development, fall root growth, fall tillering, just that fall stand established where phosphorus is extremely important. Um, so that's definitely where we're phosphorus playing a role. Potassium, again, and later in the plant's life. Uh, sulfur, you know, we're putting a lot more sulfur on wheat. We all understand the whole deposition, what we're not getting anymore. Uh, so sulfur is definitely something where we're getting at least, trying to recommend 20 pounds of sulfur in the spring on all our wheat crops. Uh, whether, that, whether we're going to use, you know, ammonium sulfate in a dry form, we're going to use ammonium thiosulfate with our UAN solutions. 
you know, however we're gonna we're gonna get that out there, but around 20 pounds of sulfur in the spring. Which is getting to some numbers that are pretty familiar for us with like corn there. Exactly. We'll talk about numbers like that. Yeah. A couple other things where you know from a micro standpoint we've been playing with and, and starting to see some some responses, especially on lighter soils, sands are really uh, washed off clay hillsides is copper and sink. Um, copper specifically, as we look at, you know, that that uh, relationship that copper has during pollination and green fill. Um, you know, it's in some really weak soils that are supplying virtually none. Uh, by applying copper, we're seeing some responses on those places. Now, whether we're going into, you know, better parts of the field, you know, just good so soil fertility in general, you know, copper and zinc not showing up so much. But if you do have some really eroded stuff, some sand, just typically doesn't hold nutrients like those soil types do. Um, we are seeing some responses to uh, copper and zinc. That's that's a good point. I mean, I can speak for my area. We don't typically take our our flat back soils and put them in wheat. It typically right. goes to the rolling ground, and that that's one question I get a lot of. What what can I add to help? And something like that with copper and zinc is a good point out for me. I know specifically in my area. You mentioned some some higher nitrogen rates, kind of the max rates, and then you kind of hinted, Scott, that then we do some special things to try and manage lodging. Um, to make sure the stuff doesn't fall over. I, I didn't know if you could elaborate on that just a little bit. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, the first thing we'll do is obviously as we get those higher rates, to split our nitrogen applications. So in those 150, 160 rates, that's two applications at least, sometimes three. So anytime you split those applications up, you're, you're going to you're going to decrease your risk of lodging because you're not giving us that that whole shot at one time. What's your max rate at one time that you tell people stay away from? One twenty is our max. Yes. You know, and, and you're you're kind of flirting with danger there. Now yeah. the weather can make you or break you there. Depending on what happens after you apply, of course. Uh, but around one twenty is kind of the line we draw. We don't really want to go over that at one time. Really, some lodging potential. So then the other thing to go with that, the second thing we'll do, um, well, there's, you know, three things. Of course, we're always always managing by variety, right? So if we know we're throwing a variety into a lodging environment like heavy manure applications, a lot of leftover nitrogen from a corn crop, something like that, obviously you gotta you gotta pick the variety that has a standability to handle that. All of our varieties are rated on standability. You know, we do some of our own testing to to kind of ground truth that, but definitely variety selection does play into that as well. And then of course the third thing we're we're using some PGRs like uh, Palisade. Um, a very for us, becoming a pretty popular product, you know. So, as a percentage of our high management acres, we're probably, you know, we're probably three fourths of those acres are now getting a product like Palisade on them. We're really trying to manage that relationship between yield and standability and nitrogen. Manage those three together. So you're uh, pulling down plant height with Palisade. Then. Yeah. Okay. So exactly. So Palisade being a growth regulator, what it does apply during stem extension. Stem, stem elongation basically shortens up them cells, and it does that by basically inhibiting the production of gibberellic acid in a plant. Instead of the elongation of the cells, you get a flattening of the cells. So what the label will say is you apply that between peak stage four and peak stage eight, right? Uh, that is a very critical part of that label uh, because during that period, we have exactly that stem extension going on. After that part, as you think about a wheat plant, um, you know, we've got a lot more yield determination going on. Head development after peak seed is really picking up. And in that process, we need gibberellic acid in the plant. So if I go back 10 years ago into the early days um, of some products we were using, I think we got some applied late and they kind of gave these growth regulators a bad name. 
Because if you do apply these things late, you, you have the potential to actually reduce yield. Because again, that plant's needing gibberellic acid and you've told and you basically shut it off. Now, if you apply too early, you have the, the, the same effect of not increasing. You guys won't necessarily reduce yield, but you won't increase standability because you're losing efficacy of the product and you still have stem elongation going on. So there's a hard cut off there. Yeah, so that, that's one label that you want to follow pretty close on timing. The other thing you'll see on the labels, it will talk about do not apply if the wheat crop is, is stressed, you know, due to drought, due to too much water, due to temperature. And again, the reason is that gibberellic acid is a, is a stress mitigator in a plant. So again, it's, it's using that, that acid in a plant to help mitigate those stresses. And again, if, if you're reducing that gibberellic acid and the plants are needing that to mitigate stress, you have, again, the potential to reduce yield versus doing what you want. Now, with all those precautions stated, I will say Palisade's a great product. I mean, and, and it, it, you know, look at our manure acres, our high nitrogen acres. You know, we all know manure is an awesome form of nitrogen to get to a plant in that organic form, but it's hard to predict, right? It's hard to know when you're going to get and how much you're going to get. So, so we're using it a lot in our livestock areas and then, of course, our high management guys. So we're getting a pretty high percent uh, of the acres using, using Palisade as a growth regulator to, to help manage standability. And it's working very well. Probably minus that, we'd be a little bit anxious about a 130, right? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. And everything, you know, I talk about those rates a little bit, you know. So if you're a grower sitting out there and maybe you're setting it at 90 pounds or 110, and you hear this crazy guy from Illinois talking about 130 to 150, you know, it's kind of one of the deals walk before you run, right? So don't go out there from 90 to 150 in one year, you know, play with that a little bit and you know, make sure you're comfortable, take that up 10 or 20 pounds at a time. You know, do some strips in a field, and yeah, you may eventually get to 130, but do that over two or three years, and and, and definitely do some of your own testing, because it goes back to the idea of, you know, how different soils hold nitrogen differently, and, and release it at different timings, and all those interactions that are happening there, and uh, so yeah, it, it's definitely something that's on a field-by-field -field approach, or grower-by-grower. Grower. And for those guys that are looking to maximize their straw yield, too, how do PGRs come into play there? So you, you will reduce straw yield by about 20% by using PGR. Yep. Um, so you kind of kind of weigh that into the equation on sustainability versus straw. Um, a lot of, you know, what I've seen more of our guys that know they want straw um, are actually counting that into their gross profit on the acre, the straw they're taking off, and they'll actually back the nitrogen off a little bit, knowing they potentially give up a few bushel on yield, uh, but also realizing they're going to keep the wheat standing. But yeah, the PGRs will definitely reduce your straw overall. So they're backing off on the palisade and then backing off on the end so they can meet their straw goal. Yep. Gotcha. Yep. So, you know, our, our saying in, in Southern Illinois is if you pull into the combine, take the combine to the field to cut wheat and the whole field is standing perfectly, um, you probably shorted it on nitrogen. And our idea is that you pull in the field to have about five to 10% of that field kind of swirled up a little bit, kind of leaning pretty hard. And if you've done that, you know you've reached that, that maximum maximum apex on the curve. Right? You, you've hit the home run. Now, you got a 50% lodge, you're going to have some pretty upset come by. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's, there's a fine line. But that's the fine line you're wanting to get. That's yeah. your visual signal for the fine line. That, yep, that's your report card for the year. Yep. Now, you know, and then we also know there's always that yearly interaction. And this is this, you know, it almost comes down to an art at some point. There's a lot of science behind it, but there's also an art. Yeah. You know, because 
130 pounds of nitrogen is going to act and act totally different depending on the two years you get. You know, are you getting some six and eight inch rains after that 130 pounds applied, or are you getting seven tenths inch rains that just kind of are perfect rains to keep everything going? So there's also that idea of how much of that nitrogen you're actually getting into the plant. Uh, and again, that, that that's kind of the art. It takes a little bit to figure it out. It's, it's not a not a one one time deal. Yeah, Scott, for us the past couple of years, we've had some really good wheat fields, uh, wheat yields up north. Um, and most of our guys, there's been a few that have dabbled in a split in applications and, um, and have tried to get a couple of guys to try some PGRs to really increase that yield so they can't increase that nitrogen content without getting it to lay over. Um, I guess what would you say, you know, what is the increase of yield you see by applying, you know, going from 90 to 110 units of end, going to that 120, 130, 140. I mean, are you guys seeing a pretty drastic jump in yield on that? Yeah, I mean, it It will always, but I shouldn't say always, but most of the time it's, we'll see an economic benefit to it. Right? Yeah. Very seldom have I seen it being negative, meaning my nitrogen cost me more than the yield increase I got. Almost, most of the time you're, you're going to see it, a yield increase enough to cover the cost of nitrogen plus a little bit, right? And we've even seen, you know, depending on the grower, depending on the field, you know, we, we've seen some 20, 30 bushel increases pretty quick. Um, so kind of where we're at now in our part of the world, you know, 90 to 100 bushel wheat was always our goal, right? That, that, yeah. that, you know, man, if we could raise 90 to 100 bushel wheat, we're happy. Well, not similar to corn, you know, what wasn't very long ago, 200 bushel, everybody was happy, right? Yeah. Now, if we're not 250, 275 in some areas, we're pressing on what went wrong. We're starting to develop that same thing along the lines of wheat. You know, we're now pushing for those 120, 125s for our part of the world. Um, it's no longer 100 bushels good enough. We're, the next level's 120, 125. So we're going to have to manage that relationship pretty strongly to get there. Um, you know, new varieties can help, but there's a lot of management it's going to take to get there. It's got the nerdy part of me that always wants to figure out how it's happening, right? So like an increased nitrogen rate, is that, are we packing more into those kernels? You know, are we increasing the size of the head? What is it that's happening that's helping us, helping us get there? So it's all the above. Okay. Yeah, it, it really is. It's a, so as you look at that, that, that increase in nitrogen and, and that, uptake when it's happening and the things that are going on in the plant you know you're just having an effect on all of that and ultimately what you're doing is you're increasing spikelet count you're increasing kernels per spikelet and ultimately increasing yield uh, you know the one thing we didn't talk a little bit about as it went back to seeding rate of course that was done last fall and, and it kind of plays into as we manage things in the spring but the main tiller on a wheat plant will, will contribute 30 to 50 percent of the final yield of that plant so, so even if you have a plant with, say, five tillers on it, four secondary tillers and a main head, that main head is going to present, you know, 30 to 50 percent of the yield of that entire plant. You know, so, so we're ma also managing managing those bigger heads as, as we look at seeding rates and some of the things we do with that. In the so an old codger like me, you know, back in the day, the uh, seeding rate was a bushel and a half per acre, right? If I yeah. remember right. Yeah. And that is not what we talked about now. But I mean, I, I know this is in the rear view mirror, but I'm sure part of this wheat conversation should be your target for for pops. What are you telling people? So so 1.5, 1.6 million is, is kind of our, our nice starting point as we look, you know, early in the fall, things are going to, we know we're going to get good emergence. It's warm, soil's are in good shape. 
you know, for every adverse condition, so to speak, will increase around eight to ten percent. So, so now if we're on October 25th, it's cold, it's wet, we're in no-till, we're obviously going to take that up another 20 or 30 percent because we're not going to get that fall tillering that we need. And again, trying to maintain a consistent uh, count on main tillers versus secondary tillers. Definitely uh, something we're watching there. Now, we also see we can't get too thick, right? And that seems to be around 2 million. And once we get over 2 million, we just, we start to see it many other agronomic issues start popping up even from whether it be from standability or some uh, disease potential for you know the, the crop can't be so thick you can't dry out it's a lot of other start things start happening once we now not that we can't get there but you know and a good planning we don't like to get that high you know flag leaf protection and protection of that pollination period from some things that can go wrong I mean, are there things that we need to be keeping in mind when you talk about eating, pushing yields further that are pretty standard practice for you guys that we should be thinking about? For those of us, again, like Brad said, and like Cody said, that are a little bit more novices on this. So we're probably down to about three strategies. As you look at fungicides and that, that whole realm of you know, what we're doing there on, on plant protection, um, the, the first strategy would be you know, at least for us in the South, you know, we can get uh, quite a bit of stripe rust come up, you know, so, and, and again, it goes back to varieties. Certain varieties have much more susceptibility than others. So, so watch your varieties. There are significant differences, but as a, as a preventative measure against stripe rust, we will apply a, a strabigerin fungicide at that uh, herbicide timing in the spring. So as we think about, you know, if you think about March, April, as we're making those those herbicide applications on, on our weed in the spring, you know, well, we're throwing some strabilier and fungicide in there. Basically, what that's doing is keeping that stripe rust at bay. Stripe rust comes in very early. Um, so, so an application at that time of year helps us helps us measure and, and really keep keep stripe rust at bay. As we progress through that, the next logical timing would be flag leaf protection, right? So as we think about that over the past few years, that's probably the one application that's probably going down a little bit on acreage. And that's because the third strategy then is managing head scab and, and managing that at a flowering timing at 10.5.1 when we see flowering in the middle of that head. So that's so you know that's kind of the third strategy. So you think about that second and third strategy together, what you find is that's only about 10 days to maybe two weeks apart on timing. And you look at a flag leaf application to a to a head scab timing, and what we're finding now with with some of these newer, higher powered fungicides that we have, the SDHI component, you know, these newer fungicides for head scab, is, is as long as that flag leaf is pretty clean, it's clean coming into that, we don't really need to protect it because these these products we're using for scab have a lot of the same AIs, and they're going to give us that protection on that flag leaf. So the only time we're really watching that is if, man, if we're just getting, if our flag leaf would be really dirty coming into that time or we get a lot of disease, get a lot of septoria showing up, something like that, um, you know, then we would definitely look at uh, look at an application earlier. But a lot of the times now, um, unless some guys are just using it as a truly preventative measure, we're really combining that, that those head scab type products for that timing for our flag leaf protection. And if you think about, you know, those products, um, you know, we're, we were talking earlier about, you know, products advancing, and that's definitely an arena that the industry has advanced pretty aggressively in the last few years. 
you know, I can remember back, it wasn't long ago, earlier in my career, you know, we had nothing but folic beer, Tebuconazole. Mm-hmm. You know, and that thing, boy, if you looked on the label, it talked about, uh, it didn't talk about control. It talked about suppression at best. You know, and it, boy, you got a heavy scab, scab here, it would just blow through folic beer. Even with applications, yeah. just couldn't stop it. So you compare that to where we are today with the, the trizoles combined with the SDHI compounds, and now you're looking at some pretty fantastic products and, and really doing a great job with controlling that scale. You know, some of your folks who are much more used to we roll their eyes, but there's that whole conversation probably for us that are a little bit more novices about strobies versus trizoles versus SDHIs when it comes to head scab, and I don't know if. I don't want to take you off topic, but I probably we probably should mention something on that. Yeah, so the whole idea of a strobe, so if you look at all your head scab products, they're going to be your, your trizoles plus your STHIs. Um, if you read your labels or you know, there's even some universities that made some cautions out there, do not apply a strobilure and fungicide on head and wheat. And basically what you have the potential of increasing your, your DON levels, right? So your mycotoxin levels could actually potentially increase in the grain by applying a strobilure and fungicide on head and wheat. So definitely a precaution there, um, and that's why you'll see the these SDHI trizole products do not contain a, a strobilure. I think even those of us that are that are novices remember Dawn 2015, yeah, and bins full of wheat that people can get rid of. Yeah, you know. so definitely, yeah, def- definitely watch that. Keep keep the strobies off the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Crystal, is there anything else we need to I guess cover on wheat before we make, maybe make a transition? I think those were really great points, and I really appreciate your wealth of knowledge, Scott, here as you walk our um, farmers of Illinois across all these topics within wheat management. One disclaimer, and I know it was mentioned earlier, but I have previously worked for um, another company in Kansas. And so as if you are a listener from another state and you hear some of these yield targets or different nitrogen targets that we've been discussing, please do not be offended. This is not... <laughs> trying to rub it in your face of productivity levels of wheat. Um, but this is just some conversation that's really valuable for a lot of our farmers here in Illinois. So um, if you like some of the ideas, please go share it with um, maybe your own local Pioneer sales representative. Um, they'll probably say these guys are crazy and what they're trying to talk about. But, you know, you can get some localized recommendations if you're an out-of-state listener. So, um, but great content. I think the key point as we look at um some of this wheat nitrogen pieces or um, even fungicide is really applying what the plant needs at the time that it will bring up an optimal uptake window. So again, thank you, Scott, for a great synopsis on wheat management. And um, with that, we're going to close out our Pioneer Agronomy podcast, where we keep you one step ahead of local agronomy issues throughout Illinois. If you have any questions or feedback, please contact your local Pioneer sales representative. And with that, we will see you at our next episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.